3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It feels weird for me to do this when you're paneling, Malika. Yeah, I, I know. I had a bit of a moment where I was like, oh, no, what are we doing? Who, who, who does it? Who does what? Um, good morning, everyone. Yes, it is uh, It is Thursday the... No, that's not the right date. It's Thursday the 21st of April. I have 14th of April on my sheet, and I believe last week or the week before we had the wrong date as well, <laughs> um, which is on me because I copied and pasted without changing it. Um, but it's just that kind of a week, hey? Um, it's been a busy time. We're in the... What is this? The second week of election campaigning, but it feels like it's been years. Um it's extremely tired. The transphobic discourse rolls on. Um, I think, you know, we need to really get back to thinking about the issues at hand uh, in terms of the upcoming election rather than thinking about this, as we spoke about last week, as a sort of political horse race between two candidates. So in view of that, we've got a couple of really interesting interviews this week. Uh, first of all, We're going to hear from Professor Libby Porter, who's a researcher and educator at RMIT's Center for Urban Research. And Libby's work focuses on dispossession and displacement in contemporary cities. And she joined me in this week's episode of Women on the Line on 3CR to discuss the importance of maintaining and building public housing as a crucial element of tackling housing insecurity. And you can listen back to that whole episode um, on Women on the Line at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. And don't forget to tune in live on Mondays from 830 to 9 a.m. We will then be joined by disability advocate and award-winning writer Elle Gibbs, who speaks with us about key election issues for disabled people, election promises, and the question of costing around the National Disability Insurance Scheme and the power of disabled and sick folks as a political force. Elle's writing focuses on disability and social issues, and you can read it at ellegibbs.com.au. Excellent. And... After that, we're going to be joined by Associate Professor Elise Klein, who speaks with us about the cashless debit card, focusing on concerns about welfare conditionality, racialized income management, and Labor's commitment this week to end all forms of compulsory income management in Australia if elected. Elise is a senior lecturer of public policy at the Australian National University's Crawford School and researching intersecting issues of social security and conditionality, women's economic security, decoloniality, development, and care. And lastly, we'll be joined by Brahmi Kumaraswamy and Naroshni. Brahmi is a meme maker who works in arts admin and is critical of the gendered nature of nationalism. She spent her early years between Jaffna and Colombo and is currently based in Sydney. Naroshni is a Tamil community organiser raised in both Sydney and Colombo and is currently based in Canberra. And they both join us this morning to discuss the current crisis in Sri Lanka. Yeah, really important stuff. Um, And you'll hear more about this in headlines, sort of foreshadowing what we're going to talk about. But uh, there is a a severe economic crisis in Sri Lanka right now, Um, you know, the worst that has been seen since, I guess, like since 
independence, really. And um, people are really struggling. Um, there are very serious concerns about the government. You know, we'll talk about it later. But there's been some significant changes, and there's some you know really important organizing going on to get some essential supplies to people there. So that's what we've got on for today. And um, we might head to a CSA and then go to headlines. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we are now jumping into the news headlines for April the 21st. These are the news headlines. Police in Sri Lanka opened fire on protesters this week, killing one person and injuring 14 others. The shocking response to protests comes as tens of thousands of demonstrators take to streets in the face of Sri Lankan economic collapse. The cost of essential food items has skyrocketed and the economic crisis has caused acute shortfalls of fuel and electricity the near, and the near collapse of the health system. Protesters are calling for the resignation of President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, blaming his policies for the crisis and calling out corruption and nepotism within the government. In other news this week, Israel has carried out airstrikes on the Gaza Strip in occupied Palestinian territory. This follows a weekend of violence in Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, which saw more than 170 people wounded. Ram, the first Arab-Israeli party to be a part of an Israeli government, has suspended its membership over the recent violence. Also this week, Australian refugee and asylum seeker advocates have spoken out against the UK's deal with Rwanda that will leave thousands of asylum seekers in offshore processing. Under the deal, asylum seekers who arrive by boat in the UK will be transferred to Rwanda, a process advocates have described as unworkable and inhumane, the one that bears grim similarities to Australia's internationally criticised asylum seeker policy. In Melbourne news, millions of pieces of polystyrene are polluting Melbourne's Yarra River, with environmental advocates warning increased plastic waste will have long-term ecological consequences for the river and for Port Phillip Bay. A new report from the Yarra Riverkeeper Association has found expanded polystyrene is the most common macroplastic in the river, with the majority of it coming from the construction industry. 
And finally, in news headlines, details continue to emerge about the Australian Defence Department's delayed removal of an unexploded high-tech missile on protected First Nations Kokatha country. Two Kokatha Badu, respected lawmen, Andrew and Robert Starkey, filed a landmark complaint with the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development alleging that weapons manufacturer Saab failed to undertake adequate due diligence before its missiles were sold to the Australian military. The cases revealed a long line of potential conflicting interests between Defence South Australia and Saab, with economic and military interests advanced in favour of commitments to First Nations heritage protection. The complaint process is underway, and lawyers for Kokatha Badu, Andrew and Robert Starkey, say the case could impact the international community of multinational weapons manufacturers who would not want to risk the reputational damage of a complaint like this one. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 21st of April. You're listening to 3CR. And just one more thing to add to that, um, not a news headline, but letting people know that the coronial inquest into the death of Veronica Marie Nelson starts next week. And the family has encouraged people to attend and support during this very difficult process. So uh, in order to support the family, you can attend the Coroner's Court of Victoria, 65 Cavanaugh Street, South Bank, Victoria. And this is from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. on weekdays. And the coronial inquest goes on from the 26th of April to the 25th of May. And the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service advised that if you wish to attend, you must follow the court's COVID protocols, which currently includes that all in-person attendees must A, have evidence of their COVID-19 vaccination status when they attend court in person, and B, wear a mask at all times except when addressing the court. So to find out more information, you can find, uh, you can head to the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services social media. So on Twitter, that's at the Vals Mob uh, to find out more information about that. So, Here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.11 in the morning on Thursday, the 21st of April. And we're going to hear an interview now that I did earlier this week uh, on Women on the Line on 3CR with Professor Libby Porter, who's a researcher and educator at RMIT Center for Urban Research and whose work focuses on dispossession and displacement in contemporary cities. And Libby joined me to discuss the importance of maintaining and building public housing as a crucial element of tackling housing insecurity. So we'll listen to that part now. I thought we might begin by speaking about the federal budget 2022 to 23 to provide some recent context about the state of government investment in mitigating Australia's crises of housing affordability, insecurity, and also homelessness. And listeners might be familiar with Prime Minister Scott Morrison's comments about the best way to help renters being to help them buy a house. Um, I'm hoping to get your thoughts on how far you see budget measures like the expansion of the Home Guarantee Scheme going to actually address the root causes of housing affordability and insecurity. 
It's a great question and, and gosh, wasn't it an offensive thing that the Prime Minister said about that and there have been so many other comments made um, in the media recently by leaders and politicians who just display a real lack of being in touch with reality about what it's like to try and manage in, a, in this housing crisis. So to sort of give your listeners a bit of context, the Home Guarantee Scheme that has been expanded really through the recently announced budget has an associated expansion of what's called NFIC, which is the kind of financial infrastructure that is effectively a policy that allows community housing organisations to borrow at a sort of decreased rate effectively to be able to build community housing, to build social housing. So what these two schemes do in terms of addressing, as you said, the root causes of housing affordability and insecurity is really not very much. The Home Guarantee Scheme is all about home ownership. It's about giving people access through a sort of lower deposit, like a 5% kind of deposit. But that just ignores the very, very many people, tens of thousands of people, who will simply never be able to get even a 5% deposit together because they live paycheck to paycheck or they don't have paychecks or there's no security of their income. So it really ignores the deep housing stress that people find themselves in currently and really also ignores the fact that people find themselves in extreme housing stress even with mortgages, particularly if interest rates start to rise. So really something like the Home Guarantee Scheme kind of deepens the conditions that produce a housing crisis in the first place which is the fact that we treat housing in Australia like a commodity. It's a wealth creation asset in these policy terms, not a fundamental human right. And that's really a huge part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And schemes like this also totally fail to take into account things like the cost of living. Now, I know that was addressed separately through a one-off Social Security top-up in this budget, but my goodness, that is not adequate. Anyway. No. When we talk about affordable housing in Australia, I'm wondering what we actually mean, because this question seems pretty relevant given that our Minister for Social Services, Anne Rustin, has repeatedly denied that there's a need to even define the concept of poverty in Australia. So housing affordability is also one of those nebulous terms that really gets thrown around with very little substance completely agree. Of course, housing affordability at its kind of most basic idea is simply looking at the relationship between incomes and cost of housing, right? When we talk about affordable housing, generally speaking, that's put forward as a kind of category of housing that often sits alongside social housing as some kind of signal of subsidy, lower market rents, that that kind of thing. In my view, affordable housing is a kind of complete misnomer. It's like a veneer that's put over a housing policy to make it look shinier and better. Because really, if you think about it, everyone should be in housing that they can afford in the basic sense that every person should be able to secure their shelter in a manner that is affordable to their budget, that suits their budget. So high-income earners and the elite all get to have affordable housing because they have enormous discretionary spend on their housing. And that's why the measure of housing stress is when a household who finds themselves in the kind of bottom range of income brackets, we normally talk about the bottom 40% of incomes, are paying more than 30% of that income in housing. So people who are paying more than 30% for their housing in those lower income brackets will find that 30% very stressful 
So this whole idea of affordable housing is a kind of misnomer. And to add to the kind of policy confusion and, and the public confusion, I think that definitions differ really across the country and around the world. At its best, affordable housing is actually linked directly to income. In other words, housing is made affordable by not charging the household more rent than they can afford. So perhaps capping it, like in public housing, at 25% of a household's income. But really what happens in housing policies, whenever anyone hears, uh, I encourage your listeners to think about this, when they hear the term affordable housing, it simply means a subsidy at a percentage of market rate, often around 80%. So if housing is already unaffordable, 80% of unaffordable is still unaffordable. So it doesn't really help um, on that front. A couple of interesting other examples, listeners might be aware that in Victoria recently the government did a bit of a backflip on its new social and affordable housing contribution which would have tried to ensure a contribution from new developments to put into a fund that would build social and affordable housing. Now it was welcome that we were trying to go there but of course the development industry didn't like it and so it isn't proceeding. So affordable housing is really just a kind of cover to build more market housing, a bit like the housing guarantee scheme that we talked about just before and does relatively little to relieve uh, severe housing stress. I think this really leads quite neatly into concerns about public housing. And you've done extensive research on public housing and the importance of increasing this specific type of housing stock. And in the Victorian case, there's been the big housing build announcement, and you mentioned mm. that there was that backflip about you know, how these sorts of initiatives might be funded. Can you tell us about some of the concerns with the Victorian government's decision to prioritise both community and public housing in that big housing build and about some mm. of the differences between these types of housing and how this plan and possibly analogous plans across other states and territories actually work to address some of the concerns we've been speaking about? Maybe let's start with some of this kind of slippery language. There's so much of it in the housing policy world, so that just help your listeners understand. So public housing refers to housing provided for low-income people that is owned and the tenancies are managed by a government, by a state government. So rents are capped usually at 25% of income, certainly in Victoria. And actually public housing is the most secure tenure in the Australian housing system. So in that sense, you know, we should really value it. It's a really important aspect of our housing system. We shouldn't sort of denigrate it in the way that we, it is so common. Community housing is when a private not-for-profit community housing provider owns the dwelling and or manages the tenancy. And rents in community housing are usually around 30% of income and sometimes more, remembering that 30% spend on housing for people on low incomes is where housing stress begins. So people in community housing are often already in housing stress. And social housing is the umbrella term that refers to both of those things, both public housing and community housing. But in Australia, at least, is increasingly used when governments would like to do a kind of crafty slate of hand to hide the privatisation of public housing. So they use social housing as a term to make it look as if we're building more public housing when actually we're not. And a really good example of exactly how this is occurring is unfolding in Victoria at the moment, as you said, Priya, where the government is spending quite large amounts of money. It's a very big program. If we look at 
just the first phase of that and the first stage of that big housing build. It was very much focused on existing public housing estates, so using land and assets already owned by the then Department of Housing and Human Services, now Homes Victoria, and was focused on sort of demolishing and rebuilding with a mix of market housing, often labelled affordable, and social housing, i.e. the cover for community housing. So in all of the numbers that the government put out about what the big housing bills would deliver in its first phase, it made some claims about adding 500 new units to the existing stock of social housing in Victoria. This was the number used in all the marketing and announcements to sort of talk about how new housing was going to be delivered. But what people weren't told was that 446 units were being demolished to make way for those 500 new units. So really the net gain in terms of actual numbers of dwellings that you get in extra is only 54. And that first phase of the big housing build cost in the order or is costing in the order of $532 million. So that's $532 million to deliver us 54 additional homes on top of what had already existed, which is pretty expensive and quite poor public policy outcomes because none of those will be public housing. They're all this community housing form of social housing. Community housing has its place, but it shouldn't be at the expense of public housing. So it's effectively privatisation by stealth. So there are similar strategies and programs elsewhere in Australia, probably other good examples in New South Wales where the government is achieving you know, similar kind of tricky policy manoeuvres and achieving privatisation of public housing through similar kinds of instruments. And really I think the sort of sad reality is that none of this will really address housing insecurity. So if we look at the growth in community housing over the last 10 to 15 years, which has been substantial, obviously come from a small base. Governments have made lots of claims over that time about how the growth in community housing will end homelessness, will address you know, increasing rates of homelessness and housing insecurity. One might imagine that we would have seen an appreciable difference in the rates of people experiencing homelessness you know, during that time, and instead we've seen exactly the opposite. We have rapidly increasing numbers of people experiencing homelessness. We have very large and expanding housing wait lists and very significant growth in the number of people experiencing housing stress, spending way more than they can afford on housing simply to put a roof over their head. Definitely. And, you know, zooming back out to the national level, we are coming up to the next federal election this year. And I was hoping to get your thoughts on housing affordability and access plans being put forward by the major political parties and whether you think we are at all on the right track to addressing any of those issues and some of the political platforms that we've seen. It's a great question too, and uh, my answer is a depressing one, and that's because I think there's a, there's a kind of political consensus in Australia on housing across what you might call the sort of traditional political divide between, say, the Labor and Liberal parties, and that consensus is that housing is an individual asset that creates wealth. And so people should purchase their housing themselves and really the only policy differences are around how to provide support for people to purchase housing themselves, whether that be in the private rental market or in home ownership. So just think of the phrases that we use all the time and we see them all the time in the media when we talk about housing. We talk about you know, getting a leg up on the housing ladder, for example. These are kind of the standard terms in which we discuss housing. So then we get policies like private rental subsidies where 
their households are provided extra cash so that they can go and access private rental. We get first homeowners grants such as the housing guarantee scheme and so on. So the assumption is that housing is like a thing that you achieve. It's an asset that reflects and adds to your personal wealth and status. And all of that just profoundly misunderstands and undermines the fact that housing is a right. So we've kind of already framed housing in this really problematic way, I think, and there's a broad political consensus that we've signed up to and we really need to rethink that from the ground up and I don't see a lot of evidence from the major parties that that is happening. The housing policy world is bewildering and confusing, so, you know, really want to try and encourage people to try and understand a little bit more, especially some of these terms that get used like social housing, affordable housing. Renters and Housing Union and Safe Public Housing Collectives have great resources on their web pages, get involved, join up on their socials, come along to meetings, you know, join and get involved. Some of us are trying to organise a little call to action on public housing. You can join us on the steps at Parliament House on May the 1st around midday. Come and join your voice to the call for real investment in public housing and properly addressing housing stress and insecurity. And that was Professor Libby Porter, who's a researcher and educator at RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, speaking with me earlier this week on 3CR's Women on the Line program to discuss the importance of maintaining and building public housing as a crucial element of tackling housing insecurity. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast now, but you can listen back to Women on the Line at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. And don't forget to tune in live on Mondays from 8.30 to 9 a.m. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ plus communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash out of the pan. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter.
You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is 7.27 in the morning. And we're now joined by disability advocate and award-winning writer Elle Gibbs, who's going to speak with us about election issues for disabled people, election promises and the question of costing around the NDIS, and also the power of disabled and sick folks as a political force. Elle, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. No worries. So on Monday, you published a blog post covering a range of issues most important to disabled people in the upcoming federal election, and you collected this in response to a social media call-out. Before we discuss some of these responses, though, could you give us an assessment of the kind of level of attention disability has been getting as we near the end of week two of campaigning? Because I note that this week we also saw the Labor Party make a commitment to review the national disability insurance scheme if elected. Yeah, no, it was it was great to see the ALP finally um, release their NDIS plans because it was really the first solid policy offering that we'd seen around disabled and sick folks. Um, before that, uh, the coalition in particular uh, had kept talking about the NDIS as only possible if we keep doing coal mining, which is always a interesting um, uh, statement to make. Um, but yeah, the ALP uh, asked for another review, which I'm not. I am a little bit sceptical about because we've had an awful lot of reviews. Uh, But they did have uh, more staff for the agency, which is a good idea. So the Coalition has had a staffing cap for the NDIA agency. So a lot of things that should actually be done in-house end up being done by contractors. And that's caused huge problems and inconsistencies and enormous amounts of admin for disabled people to wade through. Um, There was some welcome funding promises for disability advocacy organisations, but there wasn't really anything done around, you know, the people who are just on the edge of the NDIS and some of those kind of uh, broader issues around making sure that if you need support, you can get it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is something that we've spoken to both you and other people like Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre about where there are, there's, there's so much that's not captured by the NDIS and yet the NDIS is used as, has sort of become this kind of funnel and catch-all for services, which means that a lot of people kind of fall on, on the sidelines of that and don't, uh, aren't able to access things as other services are rolled back while the NDIS is prioritized. Um, could you take us through some of the key issues outlined by disabled people as priorities for the next election and also a bit about how these are interconnected with other areas of government policy that also require significant transformation, so things like Social Security and also the healthcare system? Yeah. Look, it will cover no one, surprise to no one listening who is sick and disabled that we use a lot of government public services. You know, it's uh, uh, being sick. I mean, I was on the disability support pension for 10 years and... Many people rely on income support, uh, very part-time work, um, and social services like the NDIS. So when all of those combine but also conflict, um, one of the key things that people sort of talked about was fixing the admin load of engaging with all of these services. They're all really adversarial, so getting access to enough income support. Like half the people who are on JobSeeker, for example, are disabled and sick people. And JobSeeker is not designed for disabled and sick people, and they should be on the DSP. So um, the other one that came up a lot was how unaffordable our healthcare system is for people with chronic illness and disability. And I think that's something that we need to talk a lot more of when we talk about, you know, having a universal health system, but it isn't really universal for people who have to use it all the time. So uh, people who, you know, need lots of medications, medications not on the PBS, 
accessing allied health, um, you know, lots of specialist costs, scans, all of that stuff that costs an absolute bomb and it's none of it's covered by Medicare so or only covered partially by Medicare. So it's really problematic that that affordability question around healthcare just doesn't seem to get on the radar of most people. So, um, But the big one also was that outside of the NDIS and DSP, there's nothing. And if you need, you know, small amounts of support, uh, particularly at home or access to allied health, there just isn't anything. And if you're relying on income support, you can't afford it. So there's an enormous amount of people, you know, really doing it incredibly tough. Yeah, and I think um, this really, this this gets really highlighted in people's applications, for example, for the disability support pension, where there is, you know, such a, a high bar and barriers to uh, to actually being able to access the scheme uh, that require, you know, appointments with specialists, various kinds of assessments to prove that somebody um, is eligible. That you know, we we saw a review into the into the DSP, um, I think last year, and there were some recommendations made about you know changes to to the kinds of reporting that people were required to do. But it really does speak to the fact that um, there's this one scheme now that's supposed to capture everybody, but in fact, you know, leaves a lot of people behind. And I also really appreciated the point that you made about our you know healthcare system. You know, the idea of universal healthcare. I guess being fundamentally ableist because it relies on uh, the notion that people will only use it occasionally and only use it at emergencies and totally ignores the lived experience and the daily lived experience of disabled and sick folks. Um, So returning to Labor's statements about a review of the NDIS, you also recently published a blog post analyzing government expenditure on the scheme, and I was wondering whether you could tell us a bit more about the cost framing of the NDIS and what it might mean to actually fund a truly equitable and sustainable NDIS that doesn't present disabled and sick community members as an economic or social burden or something where there has to be a cost-benefit analysis against other things that the government might provide. Yeah. There's yet another article in the Australian Financial Review this morning talking about the NDIS in wildly inaccurate ways to make some very strong comments about it being unaffordable. I'm doing air quotes with my fingers, which, of course, is helpful on radio. Um, But one of the things that I often talk about is that the NDIS is talked about differently from, say, roads. You know, we don't say that people have to you know, jump through eligibility hoops to drive on the road or we don't talk about cars and trucks using roads as a, as a burden to the economy. You know, in fact, we often talk about the exact opposite. You know, investing in roads is great, but uh, infrastructure for disabled people is always seen as not affordable. And this has a really long history, you know, that disabled people are seen as, you know, not part of the economy or outside of the economy. And there are some disabled theorists who, you know, I've, you know, unsurprisingly I'm, I'm fond of, uh, who talk about how, you know, the industrialisation process of the economy actually invented disability as a class, you know, as people who were, whose bodies didn't, compl- you know, comply with the kind of systemised work that was being rolled out. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at it, that we as disabled people, you know, we sit outside the an economy that is designed around an able body and it means that the support services that we need are part of a conversation that necessarily has to be separated from economics. And um, But that's not an easy one to have in an election campaign and to talk about it. But, you know, we aren't seen as equal citizens. And I think that that's really obvious in the way that the NDIS has talked about 
um, when, you know, commentators talk about it as unnecessary or too much or you all have too much, you know, because we aren't seen as as valuable as they are and the investments that are made in their services. Yeah, and, I mean, you you sort of see, um, you know, you see the mask kind of slip um, when politicians are talking about this, and there was a really shocking moment last night, I believe, in, in, the, in the debate between uh, Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese, where I believe uh, the Prime Minister referred to being, you know, thankful that he didn't have a disabled child or something, something along those which lines. Which was blessed. Yeah, blessed, blessed not to, yeah. Which is, you know, it really just speaks to the the fundamental way that disabled folks are seen um, and approached in policy making as, yeah, as as an economic and social burden, which is fundamentally not true. Disabled folks are part of our community and we should all be, you know, striving to, to, I don't know, create the conditions, um, the best possible living conditions for everyone. Um, It is, yeah, it's just, it's just ridiculous to to see this happen and and once again you know see disabled and sick people um be treated as i don't know just as as sort of a theoretical concept when it comes to um you know politicians talking about these issues rather than actually engaging with the lived experiences of um you know of people that have to engage with these systems um around the ndis and costs though that is just completely ignored and not talked about is the enormous growth in disability support providers. You know, Mm -hmm. we've got some companies now who have a revenue of $750 million a year. And these are enormous, like the amount of money that has gone to non-disabled people via the NDIS. It's not, the economic benefit has certainly not, you know, some of it has been to disabled people in terms of getting vital supports, but the economic benefit, the actual money, is not necessarily going to disabled people. You know, this is an estimate that there are 270,000 jobs that have been created out of the NDIS, and these enormous disability support providers, you know, who don't have any dis- you know, disabled people on their boards or in their senior leadership, let alone in their staff, some of them are trying to change some of that, but it's happening very slowly. And I always think about, you know, are we, you know, when will we get a slice of this pie? You know, mm-hmm. when do we get a slice of the so-called economic benefit of the NDIS? Um, you know, and I really struggle with how gate-kept that is from disabled people. You know, we're seen as a product uh, and, you know, they are the ones who are doing all of the work around the NDIS where I think if the NDIS actually, like the data is really clear, if, um, if pe- disabled people are trusted with their support budgets and are trusted to run their own and given the support to run their own support, they actually do really well and it costs less. But instead, we set up this enormous financial infrastructure to basically say you can only do these things with your NDIS plans. Yeah, God forbid disabled people actually, um, you know, get listened to when they talk about what they actually need. And I know. Yeah. I mean, I thought we might end by looking at that and the importance of collective action by disabled and sick folks and your power as a political force, because you've spoken previously um, with us on Thursday Breakfast about the fight against independent assessments in the NDIS and with that government initiative having since been defeated. How has disabled political advocacy and organizing been building in the lead up to the federal sorry, federal election, and what's on the horizon? Yeah. There are some campaigns that are going on, uh, and there is more to come. Uh, Every Australian Counts is running a big campaign around the NDIS, 
and there is a big day of action next week on April the 28th. So if people are keen to get involved, go to the Every Australian Counts website. Uh, the Summer Foundation is also running a, what they're calling a Down to 10 campaign about getting disabled people out of aged care. Um, there's also been a campaign around uh, improving the health of people with intellectual disability. Uh, and yesterday there was some funding announced by Greg Hunt to actually make that happen, which is, you know, credit to people with intellectual disability for yet again running an amazing campaign. So um, there's a little bit of campaigning going on, but there isn't the kind of coordinated... I think everyone's really tired, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Like, COVID has been... I'm finding the, the COVID uh, restrictions being pulled back and the public health measures being changed really challenging. And I, and I know lots of people are, are finding that really difficult. And the fact that it's not on the agenda anywhere and no one is talking about what happens to us uh, when all of this happens uh, is is very difficult. So, But maybe that's just me. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it really... You know, this is something that we've been we've been trying to talk about, and of course, you know, disabled and sick folk have been talking about this since the start of the pandemic. Is both, you know, the the late adoption of of measures, and then the quick rollback that really, uh, you know, fail to center the needs of the most, you know, vulnerable people in our society. And I'm not saying, you know, vulnerable as as kind of um, pejorative kind of term, but in terms of actually assessing the needs of so many members of our community, you know, how how long do we expect people to stay locked in their houses and unable to participate and enjoy things that other people are able to enjoy just because we've rolled back mask mandates? It's 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 yeah. just unfair. Um, it is it yeah. is very difficult, and I'm not sure how to have that conversation when every time I try and talk about it, people are. But what do you want? Do you want us all to go back into lockdown? I'm like, of course not. You know, I've been in, I was in isolation from Christmas until about three weeks ago when I got my fourth booster. And I don't want that for anyone else. Um, but I do want people to wear masks inside. And I do want there to be, you know, more awareness that COVID is not going away. And we need to actually take care of each other during this pandemic, you know. Um, and the, the people who have long COVID, you know, the new members of our disability and sick, and sick community, um, we need to make sure there are supports and services for them too. Absolutely. So just on that note, I mean, you mentioned a couple of things, but how can listeners who are disabled or sick get involved in organising and advocacy for disability justice issues? And what can others do to support, amplify and centre this work? Sure. Look, get involved with the Disability Justice Network, um, which is an amazing organisation of mostly young, disabled and sick folks who are doing incredible work. So uh, I'd strongly endorse that. And if you can, you can they, rent, they have a GoFundMe that is used for mutual aid funds for other disabled and sick people. So if you can donate, uh, please do so. Excellent. Well, Elle, thank you so much for that. And, yeah, really appreciate your analysis on this. I think, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of really important intersecting issues and, you know, just hope that people keep amplifying this message and centering the voices of disabled and sick folks as we approach this election. So thank you for your time. Thanks to you. And that was disability advocate and award-winning writer Elle Gibbs, who spoke with us about key election issues for disabled people, election promises and the question of costing around the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and the power of disabled and sick folks as a political force. And Elle's writing focuses on disability and social issues, and you can read it at lgibbs.com.au, and there's plenty of excellent analysis there. I really encourage people to check it out. Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed. 
featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colors in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tee that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post. And there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is coming up to, oh, it is 745 in the morning. Sorry about that. Was just checking the time. And um, we're going to be joined now by Associate Professor Elise Klein, who's speaking with us about the cashless debit card, focusing on concerns on welfare conditionality, racialized income management, and Labor's commitment this week to end all forms of compulsory income management in Australia if elected. Elise, thanks for joining us. So I guess just to start off with, uh, for listeners who aren't familiar, could you provide a little bit of background on income management programs in Australia? Because much of the recent media conversation has focused on the cashless debit card, but this operates parallel to the longer running basics card, which began as a racially targeted scheme through the Northern Territory intervention, and I think kind of gets lost in this conversation. Right. So, I mean... Australia's got a few programs of compulsory income management. It's been going since, as you say, the Northern Territory intervention, John Howard's um, 2007 uh, racially targeted intervention in the Northern Territory, which had a whole raft of policies. Um, so they had to suspend the Racial Discrimination Act. And, of course, if you're going to do that, you're going to do something really racially targeted, which is precisely what they did. The measures were targeted at... Indigenous communities in the Northern Territory, and um, and one of those measures was what's called the Basic Card, which is uh, um, compulsory income management. So people who were receiving uh, social security at 50% of their money was quarantined onto what's called the Basic Card, um, and they couldn't get cashed out with that 50%. The other 50% they could, but the 50% that was quarantined um, was used. Get uh, persistent in what you can buy um, items and the restricted items. You know, have all sorts of assumptions underpinning it. You know, around you know because you have alcohol and and, um, and and you can't um, use it to buy alcohol 
at that time you can use it to buy tobacco um, and also pornography. So you can kind of see the racialized assumptions speaking really loud through that those kinds of uh, um, that that policy. So that's been going um, in the Northern Territory since the intervention, uh, and there was a, a, quite a bit of research done on how. Um, that program wasn't reaching its program objectives um, in 2014. It was a, a big study by several universities um, that didn't find any um, a, a conclusive evidence that the card was meet, meeting its objectives. Um, but regardless of that, uh, um, Tony Abbott appointed mining billionaire um, Andrew Forrest to do the Aboriginal Training and Employment review about that time and one of his recommendations was to wrap up compulsory income management um, and that's where you see the introduction of what Forest originally called the Healthy Welfare Card uh, but it was introduced um, in 2016 um, uh, as the cash debit card uh, and that ramped up the amount that people's incomes are being uh, quarantined, um, uh, so 80%. And, and that's what we see uh, now um, in various places in Australia. But meanwhile, the basic card continues. Um, and then just recently, uh, the government got legislation passed for people in the Northern Territory who are on the basic card um, to be able to move over to the cashless debit card. So we've seen sort of an increase in expansion of compulsory income management in this time. Um, but at the same time, we've seen no conclusive evidence that the card works, um, and actually what we see from independent and peer-reviewed research is actually that um, all forms of income, compulsory income management are doing way more harm in people's lives than, than good. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, keeping an eye on that on that broader context is, is really important. I believe, you know, we've seen research come out, you know, I mean, We've seen research come out about uh, the effects of uh, compulsory income management in the Northern Territory at, under the basics card, uh, you know, negatively affect school attendance rates, negatively, negatively affect the birth weights of children, um, you know, because of the, that restriction of income. And, uh, you know, even with that, with that knowledge, the cashless debit card is still being promoted and with this higher level of quarantining as well. Um, I'm wondering what are some of the key issues that you found in your own research into the cashless debit card and how these relate to broader institutional attitudes towards evidence-based policymaking when it does come to social security policy in Australia? Yeah, I mean, my sort of research was looking at the cashless debit card trial in the East Kimberley, and particularly when it first came in in 2016. So I've, in my study, sort of ran to about 2018, and I was looking at how, what the card, how it was implemented, but also the impact that it was having on people's lives, but also in the community. Um, and, you know, I mean, the thing about compulsory income management is, is that if in these trial sites, if you're receiving social security, um, uh, you are getting compulsory put on, you're getting put on it. So you might be receiving, um, social security for various reasons. Carer, might be um, unemployed, you might be getting carers payments, you might be getting disability payments. You know, it's, it is such an extraordinary assumption that people um, on Social Security are not um, using their money properly, whatever that means. Um, and, so, and so you're targeting people on very low incomes 
um, and you're messing with people who are already extremely skilled at managing life on low income, and you're messing with their um, ability to manage their money being put on this card because half of it, eighty percent of it goes somewhere, twenty percent goes somewhere else. You can sometimes get you can get cash out. This is twenty percent. It's very hard to budget when it's when already on very low low income. So my research was effectively saying and showing how that was messing with people's lives and um, restricting their ability to uh, buy basic goods, um, you know, look after their kids, buy things for their kids, um, you know, all sorts of things on an individual level, but then on a community level. So the other thing about the cashless debit card is the government like to talk about how it was, you know, implemented this community support. My research is actually showing how it actually divided the community. So... You know, government just worked with a few people who actually weren't people that were going to get put on the card um, to, to get their support for the card. And some of those people that signed up and said yes originally have since withdrawn their support, but yet that hasn't registered with the government. Um, and um, they they talk about saying yes because what was promised to them was um, a whole lot of wraparound services. And which... You know, in East Kimberley, people have been chronic, services have been chronically underfunded because of the Indigenous Advancement Strategy and the um, drawing of huge amounts of funds for Aboriginal-led services. So, um, you know, people sort of said, all right, well, you know, we'll get, we'll get a bit of money with this at least. Um, and, uh, and so it wasn't community-led at all. Um, the majority of the people continue to push back against the cashless debit card. Um, there is not community support. There is, you know, a few people that might say yes or no, but, but the thing is is that it's caused such division um, and, and that's a real shame. The other thing, of, of course, is that it's completely, um, you know, it's such a, a, a you know, a one-size-fits-all kind of approach to you know, really complex issues that people, people are facing, you know. There's a lot of trauma um, going on in community, and then you, and then the government comes in and slaps this very punitive thing into people's lives. Um, you know, it has impacts um, uh, that are quite far-reaching, and mm. it also overlooks all the other um, community-led solutions, the community-led initiatives that were already functioning at the time that just needed a little bit of extra support, financial support. Um, that and and you know that that and, and those those um, initiatives. You know, completely get overlooked. Um, so, you know, those are just some of the kinds of issues that that my research was was um, was drawing out. Yeah, absolutely. Like there are there are clear reasons why this you know why this policy isn't working and i think there's also you know the the fundamental premise of both demonizing uh social security recipients um or you know assuming that there's a there's an inherent irresponsibility there but i think something that also doesn't get talked about very much is there's um you know the basis of you know this kind of program also relies on a stigmatization of people who you know struggle with alcohol and other drug use or with gambling um which i think also you know kind of needs to be interrogated in this and when you mentioned the the lack of supports uh or lack of adequate funding for support services that were supposed to be wraparound services uh, implemented with the card i mean we saw in in october 2021 the uh beginning of a grant round that was supposed to to, to fund some of these supports 
reports and you know it's like hang on a minute this this uh, initiative started in 2016 so why are the the you know stronger communities grants happening now you know why is uh why is the department of health now looking into alcohol and other drug related um supports and concerns related to the cashless debit card you know where was all of this initially um so this week, Linda Burney stated that the Labor Party opposes compulsory income management in both the form of the cashless debit card and, crucially, also the basics card. Now, I'm wondering, is this the first time we've seen Labor oppose all forms of compulsory income management? And how do you assess the significance of this statement, particularly as we approach the federal election? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, it, it is the first time um, that they've come out with such a, 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 um, a broad-ranging um, pushback against compulsory income management across the board. They, ha- they had been moving closer and closer to, you know, that direction for some time, um, and I think that's probably to do with the Aboriginal caucus um, that is part of the Labor Party. I think they've done an extraordinary piece of work in, in um, advocating against income management, um, compulsory income management. But, you know, I, I, yeah, so I, I think that's good. I, I do find it strange, though, that it's coming now within the sort of time of the election, um, and particularly through the politicisation of, you know, the possibility of age pensioners getting being put on it. Because it really speaks to this, that, because then it sort of gets to the sort of general public view of, oh, they're the deserving poor, so they shouldn't be allowed, they shouldn't be put on this thing. But, you know, the question is, but how about everybody else that's been suffering on these, these regimes for, you know, many, many years, um, when there's been no research to support um, the uh, genuine research to support the continuation of these, these, these programs? Um, how about them? And, and this kind of point around deserving and undeserving really becomes very clear because the other thing we've seen Labor do is say that they won't raise um, payments, um, uh, uh, base payments with Social Security um, uh, job, job seeker um, and youth allowance. Now, that, that I think is very instructive as to who they are really trying to support and, and who they are supporting. Um, when it comes to you know the, the social security system, and they're they're playing on this deserving and undeserving, um, and I think that's I think that's really inadequate because um, you know there's a lot we know that that the rate of of the base rate of job seeker is way too low, um, you know way below the poverty line, um, and also we've got uh, mutual obligations that continue too, another form of conditionality. Um, on people who are receiving Social Security. Um, and we haven't heard them um, wanting to get rid of that um, and, and have been supporters of it for some time. So they've got a long way to go if, if uh, they're really serious about uh, you know, improving the Social Security system. Yeah, absolutely. And it looks like there are so many different intersecting issues that need to be considered within the Social Security system. And in, in the way that we kind of approach uh, social security in this country as well, just, you know, fundamentally, as you spoke about that divide that's being created between the idea of a deserving and undeserving poor, uh, rather than looking at this from the basis of, say, human rights and dignity and kind of centering that as, as the basis for providing welfare support. Now, Elise, we're going to have to wrap up in a second, but I was just wondering where people can find your work and learn out, uh, learn a bit more about this. 
Well, I, I mean, I, my work um, is in collaboration with um, a, a range of researchers across the board, and we all sort of work as part of the Accountable Income Management um, Network. So um, there's a great website um, that has a huge amount of re- resources around the cashless debit card, um, but otherwise people can look me up at, at Crawford, um, and, and my publications are listed there. Most of them are open access, I think. Excellent. Thank you so much, Elise, and really appreciate your time and expertise on this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone. And that was Associate Professor Elise Klein, who spoke with us about the cashless debit card, focusing on concerns about welfare conditionality, racialized income management, and Labor's commitment this week to end all forms of compulsory income management in Australia if elected. Elise is a senior lecturer of public policy at the Australian National University's Crawford School, researching intersecting issues of social security and conditionality, women's economic security, decoloniality, development and care. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and it is 8 in the morning. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR and now we're going to hear a 1987 song from Warumpi Band, My Island Home. I'm 
family and my island home, my island home, my island home is waiting for me. And across the plain I close my eyes And I'm standing In a boat On the sea again And I'm holding that long Tethered spear And I feel I'm close now To where it must be My island home Is waiting for me. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and that was My Island Home by the Warrumpy Band. Now, 
in that interview that you just heard with Professor Elise Klein, Elise mentioned the Accountable Income Management Network. I just want to um, clarify full disclosure. I am involved in that organization, have been involved in doing advocacy work with them. And, um, yeah, I think it is just really important that people get engaged in looking at these concerns around compulsory income management in Australia. So, yes, I am uh, invested in some of these issues, but I also um, think it is very important to be thinking critically about our social security system. So just wanted to make that clear and also, um, yeah, let people know about this cricket match that is happening uh, on Sunday, the 24th of April at 2 p.m. It is uh, a cricket match, a game not over yet, Celebrate Our Freedom, initiated by refugees, and it's going to be at Oval 6 at Fairbairn Park in Maribyrnong. Um, join us this Sunday in a fun game of crickets to celebrate our freedom after nine years in detention, say, recently freed refugees uh, who are playing in solidarity with the hundreds of refugees remaining locked up in indefinite detention in Australia. They ask people to bring a chair, drinks and a plate of food to share, uh, to break fast together during Ramadan. So this again is Sunday, the 24th of April at 2 p.m., Oval 6, Fairbairn Park at Maribyrnong, and more info can be found by calling 041. 041- They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moravin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Year Not Fuss Iran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. A proud black man Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, it should not wonder. To enable change we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM 
And we are now jumping into an interview with two wonderful people, Brahmi Kumarasamy and Niroshni. Brahmi is a meme maker who works in art admin and is critical of the gendered nature of nationalism. She spent her early years between Jaffna and Colombo and is currently based in Sydney. And Naroshini is a Tamil community organiser raised in both Sydney and Colombo and is currently based in Canberra. And they join us this morning to discuss the current crisis in Sri Lanka. Good morning, Brahmi and Naroshini. Good morning. Hi. Thank you for having us on. Oh, no, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, really excited to speak to both of you about um, what's going on in Sri Lanka. And I guess just jumping straight into it, early this month, Sri Lanka defaulted in its international debts for the first time since independence in 1948. Could you share a bit about what may have contributed to this economic crisis and the subsequent impacts as well? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complicated question. And chat about this for hours, but to give you a super-brief um, last year, Sri Lanka ran out of its foreign exchange reserves, and it the reason why it ran out of its foreign exchange reserves is because it relies on tourism as a heavy um, input for its foreign exchange reserves. That was heavily affected by tourism, but also the Easter 2019 attack, um, which essentially depleted all of its foreign currency, um, and that gave rise to this default in debt, um, but also a rise in food inflation, a rise in um, a, a rise in food prices, power cuts, and so much more that were affecting citizens on the day-to-day for the last few months. But I also think the reason why Sri Lanka is facing this economic crisis is also due to the re-election of um, the Rajapaksa regime, who were in power during the final years of the civil conflict in 2000, from 2005 to 2009. Um, and you see this resurgence from May 2020 of corruption and nepotism in government and the rise of um, Rajapaksa Kunis, who also helped run the government. And this conflated with the depletion of foreign exchange reserves gives rise to the economic crisis that we're kind of seeing play out um, in Sri Lanka today. Yeah, thank you for providing that kind of context and behind-the-scenes story of what's been going on. And anger over this economic crisis um, and the government's handling of the situation led to widespread unrest. Despite Rajapaksa declaring a national emergency, the protests continued and the president ultimately lifted the order. Can you please speak a bit to the protests and what are some of the calls from protesters on the ground? Uh So this has been um, the biggest uprising in Sri Lanka that we've seen yet, biggest in terms of number. And um, one of the chants um, that we've been hearing is Gotbaya, go home, which means Gotbaya Rajapaksha needs to resign. And it's also a reckoning with Sri Lanka's violent history. So there's um, been a call for the abolition of presidency and the militarization of the North and Northeast. Um, because it is the hugest uprising, the majority has been, majority as in the Sinhalese majority, have been a huge part of the uprising. And they there has still been a tendency to amalgamate all the... Um, calls uh, and demands under like a un- under the banner of unity um, without recognizing um, that minorities have been protesting for a long time and it's not 
new, um, even though the scale of it is new. Um, so those are some of the demands and um, the corruption and the uh, corruption and um, Sri Lanka being in such huge debt. I know there's the, they have loans out because um, uh, China. Um, they borrowed money from China to fund its development, and China has a high interest rate. They've also bought weapons, and it has their hugest military personnel. So they're in a lot of debt, and it's affecting, starting to even have affected the middle classes. Um, and the I know um, in the uprising, there was initially a slur being used to refer to God buyer, but um, due to... Uh, due to Twitter, I think there was a huge shift in that, so that was good to see um, that was being called out. Yeah, yeah. And I think you really captured it when you said that this is not something that's new, this is something that's been ongoing and faced primarily by minorities in the community, but because it's on such a large scale, like it's it's becoming more and more apparent that this is an ongoing issue. And I guess... um, Narishni, could you speak to the significance of the entire cabinet? So 26 ministers resigning in early April, leaving only President Gotabaya Rajapaksa and his brother, Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksa. Yeah, of course. Um, well, before the cabinet resigned, as I said earlier, the re-election of the Rajapaksas gave rise to nepotism in politics. So before the cabinet kind of resigned, you have five Rajapaksas, two of them being Mahinda and Gautabaya, but also their brothers and Mahinda's son being in the cabinet. So the resignation of the cabinet was kind of intended to be the signal from um, authorities in power that they were listening to protesters, that they were actually um, making an effort to kind of um, dissolve power. But what people have kind of realised over the last couple of weeks is that the resignation of the cabinet doesn't necessarily give rise to long-term systemic change because what what resulted was in the reappointment of a cabinet with individuals who were not directly Rajapaksas but were directly but are still linked to and work with the Rajapaksas. So just because Mahinda's son isn't on the cabinet doesn't necessarily mean that corruption is free or that nepotism doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so even though it was like globally seen as a very significant event, it can also just be, it should be viewed as an appeasement of protest, which quite frankly isn't working because if you look at the protests after the resignation of the cabinet, they've just intensified and gotten more, um, more larger and bigger in capacity. Yeah, yeah. And I guess um, moving on to what's kind of happening on the ground, we're seeing organising efforts going on in diaspora communities in collaboration with on-the-ground organising in Sri Lanka. Um, could either one of you discuss the implications of organising at this scale, for example, to the point where national health officials are requesting assistance? Um, collaboration is also, uh, again, not new, but... Um Due to the dire situation that Sri Lanka has been in and is in, um, there has been a lot of help from the diaspora. I mean, what Naroshni is organizing is in collaboration with people on the ground and um, grassroots charities. So that's a collab um, between, like, to help uh, fund from, uh, send funds from Australia to on the ground. Um, 
uh, the I guess the organizing, like the physical organizing that I've seen, as in people gathering um, with their flags and stuff, is probably still mostly driven by the singly majority, just going by the nationalistic vibe and the yeah. Sri Lankan flags in those organizing um, in the images that I've seen around. But the yeah, the fundraising I know Nivershni's one is one, um, the one Nirushni is helping to organize. Um, Nirushni, do you have you, what else have you seen going on? Yeah, um, I've, I've seen a lot of efforts being directed for medical assistance because Sri Lanka is currently running very low on medical supplies to the point where if they don't receive an influx of medical supplies, there is going to be a catastrophic number of avoidable deaths. Yeah. Um, and so... By virtue of that, I think the only thing, only people that they can seem to be able to turn to is people in the diaspora, because yeah. those are the only individuals who are going to be able to provide that influx of resources. And I think um, there are quite a few crowdfunds and fundraisers that are happening um, around the world, which has been really, really lovely to see because. Um, I was telling a friend like a couple of days ago that capitalism failed so hard, and like everyone just came up being like, "No, that's okay. Like, we let us do it better." And in the last two weeks, we've seen such an out, outcry and like, um, such a mass amount of support for the economic crisis that, you know, even the Rajapaksa government couldn't provide. Obviously, like Rami said, that's tainted by the fact that the majority, which does feel, does have a lot of privilege, the Sinhalese majority that has a lot of privilege, is finally waking up to realise things that the minority has been, minorities have been speaking about for a very long time. But I don't want to discredit um, how great it has been to see the kind of support that Sri Lanka has been receiving from the diaspora as well. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, Brahmi, could you maybe share a bit more of the impact on the crisis, of this crisis on minority communities, especially the Tamil community? Um, I think for the minorities, well, the, I've seen um, minorities, I guess, being called out even for not participating. Well, Firstly, that's incorrect because minorities have very much been even participating in the current protests um, around Sri Lanka, but um, that they may not be participating at the scale that um, some people would like to see. I think it is fear, I guess, because minorities come with a, the history of um, being violently attacked for protesting. So there, there would be a level of disillusionment that um, minorities in Sri Lanka would already be carrying, which may prevent some minor, some people within um, minority groups from attending protests due to um, fear and just tired, being mm. tiredness. Um, although there are, that's not to say that minorities aren't um, currently protesting as well because they very much are and also Sri Lanka is um, not just made up of two minorities there's yeah. um, the two the two dominant min- uh, sorry two dominant ethnicities are the Sinhalese and Tamils but there's um, a bunch of other minorities um, there's Anjuma Tamils oppressed um, like oppressed who are an oppressed caste. Um, so there's oppressed caste Tamils, there's hill country Tamils, there's Muslims who um, speak Malay or Tamil, um, there's the indigenous population that was uh, most, for the most part has already been erased um, mm-hmm. for a large part. So there's um, 
the calls by the singlies or dominant caste samals aren't the only um mm, only yeah only things that's happening um yeah although those are the two loudest voices in the diaspora it can the tamil voice can also be the uh, the dominant caste tamil voice can be quite loud because those are um those of us who manage to escape tend to be um ha- have had resources enough resources to yeah. have have escaped but for panjama tamils economic um uh, marginalization has always been um the like frontmost um issue mm. considering that it um stems from labor exploitation and um and not necessarily just uh didn't arise from the single act and yeah 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 thank you for clarifying that Rami and i guess narration as you wrap up um what can listeners do to support relief and organizing efforts particularly with your um current and ongoing organizing mm-hmm. um you um so there are a couple of different ways that you can donate and all of that is available on the link tree of my instagram um which is my handle is um nurushnis n i r o s h n and then 3e um but also there are quite a few documents that are floating around which i am able to retweet and i'm sure um you guys will be able to retweet as well that will allow you to um donate um the issue with shalanka like we discussed earlier is that there is no foreign exchange reserve so that means that paypal is necessarily working so if you're going to make any kind of donations you're going to have to make it through um this platform called wise that's one of the main reasons why um we're crowdfunding because in through um creating this crowdfund one individual has nominated themselves to undertake that transaction mm-hmm. fee that wise was essentially um encouraged incurred in the process um but i also think really staying up to date with what is happening in sri lanka is super important there are so many um articles that are being uh written by western like by news corporations in western countries that aren't necessarily grasping what exactly is happening on the day to day and also the complexities of a mass uprising because these individuals who are uprising aren't necessarily a homogenous entity either they have very different demands and often are in conflict with each other so mm-hmm. i think understanding that and thereby also donating relief to individuals who genuinely genuinely need it um who have been suffering for quite a long time and this is kind of the crescendo of that suffering is um what i would kind of recommend and also urge everyone to really get around yeah thank you so much for sharing that narration and we can definitely add it to the show notes um for today's um show and yeah that's great yeah thank you both for joining today Rami and Narishni um and sharing a bit more about what's going on as well as the organizing efforts thank you so much no worries thanks so much for having us thank you um you're listening to 3CR 855 AM and we just heard from Rami Kumarasamy and Narishni Rami is a meme maker who works in arts admin and is critical of the gendered nature of nationalism. She spent her early years between Jaffna and Colombo and is currently based in Sydney. Nuroshni is a Tamil community organizer raised in both Sydney and Colombo and is currently based in Canberra and they both join us to discuss the current economic crisis in Sri Lanka. To enable change we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighborhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org.
a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we are coming up to the end of today's show. So first up, you heard Professor Libby Porter, who's a researcher and educator at RMIT Center for Urban Research, talking with me on this week's episode of Women on the Line about the importance of maintaining and building public housing. We then heard from disability advocate and award-winning writer Elle Gibbs, who spoke with us about key election issues for disabled people, election promises, and the question of costing around the National Disability Insurance Scheme and the power of disabled and sick folks as a political force. Elle's writing focuses on disability and social issues, and we encourage you to check it out at lgibbs.com.au. We then spoke with Associate Professor Elise Klein about the cashless debit card, focusing on concerns about welfare conditionality, racialized income management, and Labor's commitment this week to end all forms of compulsory income management in Australia if elected. And just uh, another reminder and disclosure, Elise mentioned the Accountable Income Management Network as a resource for information about the cashless debit card and the pushback against that. I'm involved in that. This is Priya speaking right now, um, but encourage people to to, to check it out if they're interested and um, to continue amplifying this. And then lastly, we heard from Brahmi and Nirushni. Brahmi Kumarasamy is a meme maker who works in arts admin and is critical of the gendered nature of nationalism. She spent her early years between Jaffna and Colombo and is currently based in Sydney. Nirushni is a Tamil community organiser raised in both Sydney and Colombo and is currently based in Canberra. And they both joined us today to discuss the current crisis in Sri Lanka. And um, Nirushni is doing some organising um, and fundraising for the crisis. So we will include um, the details of her Instagram handle where she has a link tree with different organisations and groups you can donate to, um, as well as a bunch of other resources on the matter. But thank you so much for today's show. It's a big show, but a really important show, I think, yeah. with everything we covered. Yeah, excellent stuff. We'll catch you next week on Thursday Breakfast. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.